Well, good morning, Saints. Great to see you all in church on this uh, long weekend, the May 24th weekend, Victoria Day weekend, also known as the official cottage opening weekend. And so for those of you that made it out to church, welcome. And if you're watching online, we welcome you as well. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to thank you, those of you who were praying for me last week while I was away in Philadelphia speaking at the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word Synod. Um, It went well, and I got home last night, and I'm so thankful to be back here with you. So thank you for praying. All right, Bible's open. An open Bible is better than a closed one. It's more useful. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered here this morning to worship you as you are revealed to us by the Son and as our hearts and minds are carried along by the Spirit. We give you all praise and all glory. As we now gather around your feet, as it were, to hear and receive from your word, Would you speak to us? Would you confirm and strengthen us in all goodness? Would you convict us of our sin that we might repent and find strength in your mercy and grace? Grace and mercy to sustain to the end. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at Acts chapter 1. We'll begin with verses 12 to 14. As we've been tracking along through this series, you'll notice we're at the point where the disciples, having already witnessed the ascension of Jesus into heaven, now make their way back to Jerusalem. So where did they witness the ascension of Jesus? Do you remember? On the Mount of Olives, on Olivet. Now they're going a day's journey, a Sabbath day's journey back to Jerusalem. The first thing I want you to notice in this part of the passage is that the disciples are obedient and prayerful. These two simple things form a model or a paradigm for all Christian disciples ever since. Obedience and prayer. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem as the Lord had instructed them back in verse 4. They were obedient to their Lord. Verse 13. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to, say it out, prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Obedient and prayerful. Friends, before we really get into our passage this morning, I just want to point that out to you. Time spent in prayer is never wasted. As a Christian man or woman, shape your life around these two things, obedience and prayer. Let me give you a very practical thing. The next time you're standing in a queue or in a line, the next time you are waiting for something, instead of pulling out your phone and wasting time on Twitter or TikTok, pray. Have you ever considered that? 
or maybe even redeem your bathroom time. Instead of this time suck of social media, what if we actually used that time and redeemed it in prayer? Here we see a picture of the disciples waiting, not idly, not watching the grass grow or the paint dry, but being obedient and praying. Obey and pray. Pray and obey. Let's just skip back for a moment to verse 13 and pick up where we left off there. It says, And, they, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and then it lists off a bunch of names. How many names does it list? How many? Eleven, that's right. Were you expecting twelve? Already in the text we notice that there's a problem that has to be addressed. You see, God in his infinite goodness and wisdom had foreordained that there would be twelve apostles. Twelve apostles that would be the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the twelve tribes of Israel. It was God's intent that his people would be numerically gathered around the number 12. Now, back in the Old Testament, it appeared through those 12 tribes that God's people were ethnically or tribally defined. But in the fulfillment in the 12 apostles, we see that God's people are not defined by ethnicity or tribe. They are from every nation, every tongue, from every tribe. And so we need one more apostle, don't we? And so we come to the meat of our text. Verses 15 to 26. This account that Glenda ably read to us this morning is sort of odd, isn't it? It's sandwiched in between the promised Holy Spirit in verses 1 or sorry, in verses 5 and 8 of chapter 1, and the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 4. So why is this included in our Holy Scripture? Well, I believe it's here to show us something of the character of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, when you think about the character of the Holy Spirit, what are some of the first words that come to mind? If you were raised in Sunday school, maybe you can quote Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Say them with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Surely those are the fruit of the Spirit. Those are part of the character of God the Holy Spirit. But in our passage here this morning, sandwiched between the promise of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see something more of God, the Holy Spirit. We see that in the Holy Spirit, there is an unrelenting devotion to the glory of the person of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 and said. So the, the scene here is that the disciples have descended from the Mount of Olives. They've returned back to Jerusalem. They're in the upper room. They're obeying. They're praying. And how many of them are gathered in that room? Roughly 120. 
and Peter steps up and takes charge. Peter addresses this first assembly of the church. Now, if you've been tracking through the accounts through the Gospels, this might be an unexpected turn of events for you. The end of John's Gospel records Peter's threefold betrayal of Jesus. Three times he denies that he even knows him in the hour of Jesus' greatest need. Three times, cowardice overcomes faith. But three times also, Jesus, in his resurrected body, meets with Peter and commissions him to feed my sheep. And so at this very first gathering of the church, 120 of them in the upper room in Jerusalem, it is Peter, commissioned and forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands up and feeds the sheep. How does he feed them? Well, he starts out by feeding them with God's word, doesn't he? And see, friend, I think this is an important point for us to note before we wade into this passage where the disciples respond to Judas' betrayal. In this passage, behind this narrative, there are two different men that are featured. There's Peter and there is Judas. Judas will serve to all of us as a warning and Peter as a source of comfort. We're going to look in detail at the features of this text as we move through, but first I just want to talk about Judas. Because that's what Peter does in verses 16 to 20. In verses 16 to 20, Peter gives a graphic description of the outcome of Judas' life and betrayal. It's not something for the faint of heart or the weak stomach, is it? No doubt you know the story of Judas, even if you've never been to church before, you've heard of Judas. Judas is one of those names like Adolf that has fallen out of popularity. There aren't many expectant parents that are like, you know what we're going to name our son? We're going to name him Judas. Because his very name personifies the greatest betrayal in human history. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane for 30 pieces of silver. He was then overcome by regret and by grief, and then he tried to take that money back to the religious leaders who had bribed him, and they um, hypocritically refused the money. We don't want it. Right? It's blood money. Guilt's on you, Judas. Judas couldn't bear the guilt. And so he went to a field and he ended it all. Well, today's passage, as we look at Judas, it's a cautionary tale, cautionary account for every Christian man and woman here today. Look at verse 17. It's a cautionary account for us because in verse 17, Peter reminds the disciples that Judas was numbered among them. 
He was even allotted a share in this ministry. Verse 17. What does this mean? Peter's telling the disciples, he says, you guys remember that Judas spent years with us, years with Jesus. Modern equivalent. Judas went to church. He never missed a Sunday. He was numbered among us. He was also a lot of share in this ministry. Judas was even the church treasurer. In fact, when Jesus commissioned his disciples during his earthly ministry and sent them out to do ministry in various towns, Judas was included in that. He went on short-term mission trips. Everything about Judas outwardly appeared as though he was a disciple of Jesus. But friends, we are cautioned in this passage that Judas was never born again. Judas was never born of the Spirit. Judas had never been converted. He had never been granted the new birth. He had never been granted a new heart with new affections that loved and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, we know that by his actions, by what he chose to do. His actions and his decisions show us that he'd never been given this new heart. He finally and ultimately made the decision to prefer money and the pleasures of wealth over the kingdom of God. Does that cut a little too close to the bone this morning? Well, it ought to invite us to self-examination. Have you ever been born again? Have you ever been born of the Spirit? Have you ever been given a new heart and new desires and new affections by God? How can you know Well, here we are invited to look at our own desires and our own affections as diagnostic tools to show us where our hearts lie. And maybe for you it's not money that you prefer and choose over the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it's something else. But it's worth pausing to reflect. It's worth inviting the Holy Spirit to examine and convict so that you can repent and course correct. Maybe it's not money. But I'd say in Northeast Burlington, chances are pretty good it is money. The love of money that you put above the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let, let's talk about that just for a moment. Let's talk about money. Because how you deal with money will be an indicator of whether or not you have truly been born again. If the Spirit has caused you to have new affections where you prize the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else, look at how you deal with money. Let me be really clear. In Scripture, there is no explicit virtue in poverty. There is no exclusive vice in wealth. 
It's not about how much money you have. It's about how much money has you. Are you owned and controlled by your possessions? You find that people are obsessed with money at both extreme ends of the wealth continuum. People who are extraordinarily wealthy sometimes can be owned by their money and their possessions in such a way that it shows that they've never actually been born again. And like Judas, they would betray Jesus Christ for another buck. But the same can be true of people at the opposite end of the wealth spectrum. It's all too easy when you're dirt poor to become obsessed with money and think that that next dollar is what's actually going to take care of you when in fact it is your Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not about being poor or rich. It's about how much your money has you. I want to give you two examples from Scripture that will highlight this. The first one is Judas, the guy in our passage. The second one is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Judas looked at his life and looked at his economic state, and he asked the question to his ultimate demise, how much money will they give me for Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea, who was a profoundly wealthy disciple of Jesus, after the Lord Jesus Christ had been crucified and didn't have any place to bury his body because he was poor and didn't have a place to even lay his head, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, said, Jesus, use my tomb. Judas said, how much money will you give me for Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea said, Lord Jesus Christ, how much money can I give you? Can I give you more? It all belongs to you. Do you see the difference in posture? Well, money is not the only indicator of where your heart is with the Lord, but it's a pretty good one. Judas betrayed Jesus for money, and so he revealed what was actually in his heart. Christian brother or sister this morning, what do you prefer over Jesus? This account of the life of Judas serves as a warning, a reminder that we must constantly self-examine and allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light on the things that we place above the Lord Jesus Christ, the things that we use to functionally betray him. Repent and return. That's one of the reasons that this account is here in Acts. But you know, friend, this account is not here in Acts to ever rob you as a Christian man or woman of your assurance that is in Christ Jesus. If you are hearing this account of Judas and you're concerned, I want you to remember that the account of Judas is not the only thing that we see in these verses. We also see the account of Peter. Judas is a cautionary warning of 
the end of loving and trusting in money, the end of not repenting and not returning to Jesus for mercy. But Peter shows us that even when we are fearful and weak, even when we swing and we miss, when we repent and we return to the Lord, there is always grace and mercy to be found in him. Well, when I came in this morning, I didn't intend to talk about this next topic, but I don't see how I can preach this passage without talking about it. And that is the topic of suicide. And why not? We've already been talking about money, right? What's one more uncomfortable topic? We know that Judas did end his own life. And we know his ultimate fate because scripture is clear. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, actually warned and said that the one who betrays me, Judas, it would be better for him if he was never even born. We know the final outcome for Judas because it's in scripture. But friend, be very careful. Do not draw the same conclusion for every person who ends their own life. Let me say this a different way. If you are here today and you know and love someone who ended their own life, do not go beyond Scripture. If you're wondering, is that person awaiting me in heaven? If you are scared, if you are worried, if you are fearful, your job as a Christian man or woman is not to pray or preach them into heaven or into hell. That's not your job. Instead, it's your job to commit them to the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's their only hope. And that's your only hope too. One of my great heroes, Martin Luther, back in the earliest days of the Protestant Reformation, he was a parish priest. And the story goes that a young boy in his church committed suicide. Well, Martin's bishop instructed him clearly that this young boy's remains were not to be buried in the consecrated cemetery attached to the church. Because the bishop said his final act on earth was this act of sin, and therefore he was not to be buried amongst the saints. You know what Martin Luther did? The apocryphal story goes that he, on a rainy night, he covered his head with a hood, took a shovel out into the cemetery, and dug a grave for that boy in the consecrated cemetery. He wrote back to the bishop, and he said, if you believe that God would damn that child to hell merely by that final act, not considering his present state of mind, not giving any thought to his election, then, sir, your God is my Satan. What was Martin saying? He was saying, 
that we know for certain the outcome for Judas because we're told in Scripture. But for everyone else, we commit them to the love and the mercy of God in Jesus Christ and entrust them to him. That's all you can do. That's all you have. You don't know your loved one's state of mind in the last moments. You don't know if with their last breath they cried out to Jesus. You say, well, was that enough? Well, of course it's enough. Have you heard of the thief on the cross? Judas serves as a warning because we know what happened to him from Scripture. And Peter serves as a source of comfort. Verse 20. Judas is gone. There are only 11 left. Peter tells the account. And in verse 20, he says, So let another take his office. And I want to conclude with three quick points. Look at verse 16. Peter said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit beforehand by the mouth of David spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The first thing I want you to see in this is that nothing takes God by surprise. Not even this greatest betrayal in the history of humanity. God actually expressly knew a thousand years before Judas betrayed Jesus in Gethsemane, not only that this would happen, but that it had to happen in order to fulfill Scripture. It had to go down this way. This tells us something of the character of God and something of the nature of Scripture. All right, I won't unpack that. Let's move to verses 21 to 22. Second point. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us witnesses to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Did you notice the qualifications that were required for these two men that were put forward? They had to have been there from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. They had to have seen Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, in order to qualify as a replacement among the twelve, they had to have been rooted in Jesus. Now, as we are reading this in the 21st century, we might ask the question, why is that? The Holy Spirit is about to be poured out in a few mere verses. Is not the Holy Spirit enough? And what we learn from this is that every legitimate experience of the Holy Spirit is rooted in and looks back to and brings glory and honor to the life, death, 
resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Spirit came. That's why the apostles had to be men who were grounded and rooted in Jesus. It wasn't enough just to have an ecstatic experience of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't enough just to have gifts of the Spirit. They needed Jesus. So Matthias and Joseph Barsabbas were put forward as replacement. I want to note on this point before we move on that there's a popular movement in the air quotes churches these days called deconstructionism. Have you heard of this? They are revisionists, people who deconstruct the Christian faith. They take the perspective that God's word was bound by primitive times and primitive men, and clearly we know better today. They would say things like, um, the Spirit is doing something new in the church today. Those are the sorts of things that they'd say. Well, today we call them deconstructionists or revisionists, but in church history they were called heretics. They claim that the Spirit is doing something new in their churches, and so they try to rewrite the Bible as the Spirit, air quotes, is leading them. It's no small coincidence that the Spirit always seems to rewrite the Scriptures in the ways that they would prefer. Well, remember verses 21 and 22. The Spirit will be poured out on men grounded in the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. God doesn't change his mind. It's rooted in those things. Let me say it another way. When we read our Bibles, we are in the New Testament reading and building our faith on the teachings of the apostles, the Spirit-empowered teachings of the apostles who bore witness to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the only way that we read our Bibles well is when that same Holy Spirit causes us to read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus we don't get to make it up and then claim that the Spirit showed us something new the replacement apostle had to be there from the beginning because he had to be rooted in Jesus before he received the Spirit. He couldn't just receive the Spirit and then make it up off the cuff. The Spirit today is still at work in the church and will do and can do no other than to bring glory to Jesus. The Spirit's work today in the church is jealous for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that the replacement apostle had to have been there from the beginning.
every other claim to the Spirit's work apart from the clear life of Jesus is heresy, false doctrine, it's not Christian, it's revisionist, and it leads to hell. Look at verse 21. Peter refers to the Lord Jesus. Do you see that there? Well, this, as we're moving through our series in Acts, you're going to notice that the Lord Jesus is the common title given to Jesus, the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul is later going to tell us that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the work of the Spirit. You see, it's the Spirit of God that shows you that there is a king, his name is Jesus, he died for your sins, he raised a new life, he's ascended into heaven, he rules over everything, and he will be our judge. It's the Spirit of God that does that. Be really cautious of Christians who claim the Spirit's work apart from Jesus. Those are just feelings or personal preferences. All right, third and final point. Verses 23 to 26. So they got the two guys, they are qualified, Matthias and Justice, and they're saying, these guys are qualified, we need to pick one of them. How are we going to choose between the two of them, and what do they do? They cast lots to determine the outcome. 120 of them gathered around, and that's the best they could come up with. But let me be serious for a moment. As they are obediently waiting and praying, they know that they have to fill this vacancy. And so they decide, as best they can, to seek the will of God. Now, the casting of lots was common practice throughout the Old Testament to determine God's will. Casting of lots means that they had etched stones and they would throw them down on a table and then the way that those stones fell, they would then determine by reading those stones what is God's will for this question that we've set before the Lord. So they're at a moment where they're saying, okay, A or B, let's put it before the Lord and cast lots. All right, you know how the lots come up? Spoiler alert. The lots come up and they choose Matthias. And that's the will of God. So now you're a Christian man or woman living here in Burlington, and you're saying, all right, R.D., I get it. If I want to know the Lord's will for my life, I'm going to go home and throw the dice. No, don't. This is the only place recorded in the New Testament where there is the casting of lots. And you have to read these narratives sequentially through salvation history. God is doing something through time that is building and growing. Do you know why this is the last time that lots are used to determine God's will? Because the Holy Spirit's about to be poured out in a couple verses. And so they had to cast lots. You and me, ever since Acts 2, we have something better. We have the Holy Spirit. If you're trying to figure out God's will right now and you're sitting down saying, I have option A and I have option B, which one should I do? Pray. 
Ask the Holy Spirit to direct your reading of Scripture. Read your Bible. Look for principles that you can apply and glean to your circumstance and your situation. And then seek the counsel of elder Christians, men and women who have been walking with the Lord longer and are better shaped by Scripture, by the Spirit. Don't cast lots. Turn to the Holy Spirit. All right, we'll leave off there for now. The disciples are obediently praying in the upper room. Judas is gone. Matthias is in. The 12 have been restored. God's plan for the redemption of humanity will not be thwarted, not even by Judas. In fact, that was part of his plan all along. The Spirit is about to be poured out on them. They will be witnesses to Jesus. And that same Spirit has been poured out on you if you are a Christian. That Spirit who purposes and performs the very will of God in and through you. His will that cannot be thwarted. Nothing takes him by surprise. He leads Christians and the church of Jesus that Jesus bought with his own blood. And this spirit we see through this account leads the church that Jesus bought with his blood by glorifying the life, the teaching, the substitutionary death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. That's how the Spirit does it. Let's pray. Lord, when we come to some of these passages, their meaning is not as plain or easy to see, but we thank you that your Holy Spirit is still at work. The Spirit of truth, the Spirit that gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, I pray this morning that you would encourage us in our love and trust for Jesus. You would convict us of those things that we love more than him. That your spirit would lead and direct and guide us. Bringing glory to the Son. Reconciling us to the Father. We pray this in his name. Amen.